One of the things that I discovered fairly early in my Christian life was that there were two levels at which I could live as a born-again Christian. If if I was only interested in going to heaven when I die, then that's one level. But there's another level that the Bible invites me to live at, which will save me from regret at the judgment seat of Christ. But not just for that, but because that's the only way we can show our gratitude to the Lord for what he's done for us. So one is centered around, am I going to go to heaven when I die? And the other is centered around, am I going to please the Lord or not by the way I live? So in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12, we read about those two levels that every one of us can choose which of these two levels. Now I'm not talking about going to heaven when you die. If your sins are forgiven, and your conscience is clear, well, the Lord will receive you. But I don't want to live eternity with the regret that I could have shown more of my love for the Lord on earth. It would be too late to say it then. And here in 1 Corinthians 6.12, Paul says, All things are lawful for me. Now, he doesn't mean that sinful things are lawful. So we got to understand all things means a man who's already turned away from sin and accepted Christ as his savior. There are 101 things on earth which are perfectly lawful for a Christian to do, to engage in, to spend his time on, to spend his money on. Many, many, many things. But he says among all those multitudes of lawful things, there may be only 10% that are profitable. Profitable means profitable in terms of eternity. Things that will have value for eternity. Things that I will have no regret over when I stand before the Lord. So, a Christian who is only interested in going to heaven when he dies will avoid unlawful things, which is good, because a lot of Christians even indulge in unlawful things. But here's a good Christian who says, I'll never do anything unlawful, I won't cheat, I won't tell lies. All lawful things. You think such a person is a good Christian, who has avoided cheating and avoided telling lies and avoided hurting other people. He only does what is lawful. And many Christians get a good testimony by that. That testimony is lawful. In fact, you can congratulate yourself that you're keeping a good conscience. The man, this is the man living at the level of his conscience. Anything that his conscience troubles him about, he settles immediately. And he would not go along a path where his conscience will not permit him, because it's unlawful. He immediately chooses the lawful. He'll never watch pornography, for example. It's unlawful. He only chooses the things that are lawful and lawful and lawful. And it's possible for us to live at that level and Imagine that that is the best type of Christian life. It is not. There is another level where when I look at something that I want to do, I don't just decide, is it lawful? Is it profitable? Not profitable for me. The world is full of people who think, is it profitable for me? Is it profitable for the kingdom of God?
Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. If I choose that path, is that going to be the best for God's kingdom? For his purposes? I mean, I can choose a slightly lower path without sinning. Many other Christians are doing it. There's nothing wrong with it. Other Christians do it. And I I find even some good Christians in my church may be doing it. I say, so what? I don't want to judge them. And I don't want to imitate them. I'm going to choose what is most profitable in terms of what will glorify God the most. That can be an altogether different level. And that may involve eliminating 90% of the things in our life. So our life is restricted to a few few choices that we make. And people may think, boy, that's a very restricted type of life. You can't do this and you can't do that. I said, no, 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 I can't do it. Lawful. There's a difference between saying I can't do it and I don't do it. Don't do it is my choice. I can't do it means I'm scared either, either I'll get caught or God will be unhappy with me. No, God will not be unhappy with you. If you live at the lawful level, God's not going to be unhappy because you're keeping your conscience clear. And living at the level of a conscience is a very good level because most Christians don't even live there. And I'll tell you, you'll be ten times better than most Christians if you live at the level of your conscience. But there is a higher level. That's what I'm trying to say. What is profitable? He talks about food. Stomach is for food and food is... God will do away with both of them. He just takes an example in verse 13. Okay, there are other examples, but since he's mentioned food, we can think of that. There's nothing wrong in indulging yourself in food. In spending a lot of money on good food. You're not stealing other people's money. You're going to restaurants every now and then and enjoying yourself. Because you have a lot of money to throw away. Throw away. Yeah, and it's not other people's money, it's your money. Is it lawful? Absolutely. You can eat as much as you like. But then there are other Christians who read in the Bible. That if you want to accomplish God's purposes, there may be times when you have to fast and pray. And there are Christians, believe it or not, who've never fasted once in their whole life. Because you don't have to fast to go to heaven. You can eat three meals a day every day for a hundred years. And it's all lawful. You haven't cheated anybody. But I remember as a young Christian, I did not understand the purpose of fasting at all. I was too young and the church I went to, a brethren assembly, they never spoke about it at all. Nobody fasted there and nobody ever told me anything about it. Most churches are like that. You'll hardly ever hear go to a church where they have a message on fasting and prayer. But as I read the word, I said, Lord, you, there's so much you have mentioned in the Gospels, even in the Sermon on the Mount. He speaks about fasting and at the end of it it says, If you only hear my word and don't do it, that means you hear about fasting and you never do it. You're like a man who's built on sand. Wow. You mean if I don't fast, I'm building on sand? That's what it says. But if you hear my word and do it, then you'll build on rock. Now, I'm not teaching a legalistic religion here. Please understand this. 
If you do it because you heard this message, it's not going to take you anywhere. Or you do it in order to twist God's arm to get something from him, you're not going to get it. It's when you love Jesus so much, you say, Lord, is this something that's going to please you? Even if I don't understand what's the cause of it. I mean, a good child will obey his father who tells him to do something if he doesn't even have a clue why the father is asking him to do it. Or according to his mind, he says, that's a stupid thing to do. Now, why should I do it? You don't gain anything from it. But dad's told me to do it, so I'll do it. That's a good, obedient son. That's the way we got to approach the commands of Jesus. My dad's told me to do it. So even if I don't understand, I'm going to do it. So what I used to do, I was in the Navy working on a ship, young man, 23, 24 years old. I said, Lord, I don't understand head or tail about this fasting. But I'm going to do it. I'll fast initially one meal and then two meals and then a whole day. But still going about my work and drinking only liquids. And I can't say that I got any particular benefit out of it, probably a little healthier. But other than that, I found that somehow I can't connect the two. But my spiritual senses became a little sharper. And I could ascertain God's will a little more clearly. Then when I indulged myself and indulged myself never using other people's money, never eating anything that is bad. That's just one example. I mention it because food is mentioned here. So there could be many, many other things. But I want to turn to Hebrews and chapter 11, where you know this great word which says, Without faith, verse 6, it is impossible to please God. Now, I remember when I first read that, I said, boy, I better discover what real faith is because later on in James, the next very next book, it speaks about a faith which is not genuine and a faith which is genuine. And if we believe faith is the most important commodity that we need to get in our life. I mean, it's like going to buy gold or diamonds or something. I never bought gold or diamonds in my life. But I've heard that people who go for that very often get cheated. Because there are a lot of things that look like gold and a lot of things that look like diamonds and they're not. So, if anybody wanted to go and buy gold or diamonds, he'd take an expert with him and say, hey, listen, I can be cheated. And if faith is the most important thing in the Christian to have, more important than gold and diamonds, hey, we better be careful that we get the real thing and that we don't have some cheap counterfeit that the devil's fooled us with. There's a lot of counterfeit faith where it just eases our conscience. I'm on my way to heaven. I've accepted Christ. I trust him. But Let's look at faith as mentioned in this chapter. Then we probably get a little more light on what is genuine faith. Okay. The first is Abel. Verse 4. I'm trying to find out that faith which pleases God. And I don't want to be fooled by a counterfeit. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. It's interesting that as soon as man is put out of the Garden of Eden, that is Genesis 3. Please turn there. 
But remember this expression, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain and obtained a testimony from God that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts. Not about him, about his gifts. And through faith, Abel is dead. But he still speaks. And I want to hear what he's speaking. What is Abel speaking to me today, even though he's dead? When I read a word like that, I say, what is Abel speaking to me now? Did you ever ask that question when you came to that verse? I'm just trying to encourage you. I'm not trying to condemn anybody. I'm just trying to encourage you to read the Bible a little more, with a little more alertness. You read that sentence and you say, what is Abel speaking to me when he's already dead? Well, all I need to do is turn back to Genesis in chapter 4 and find out what is Abel speaking to me when he's dead. Because it speaks about sacrifice and it says he offered a better sacrifice than his brother Cain. So, as soon as man is turned out of the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3.24, God drove the man and his wife out of Eden. And then as soon as a child... uh, They have two children. I'm sure they had many, many more. But Abel and Cain are mentioned here. And the very first thing we read of is they're making an offering to God. The very first thing mentioned after man was turned out of Eden is two people making an offering to God. And one of them God is delighted with. And the other... God's not happy with at all. And that is quoted in Hebrews 11 as a mark of faith. Aha. So now I'm trying to find out what faith is. I'm trying to get an answer to the real faith. And we see here, if you read carefully, Abel brought from the firstlings of his flock because he was a shepherd. He brought a lamb. Cain, we read in verse 3, was a tiller of the ground. He was a farmer. Not a shepherd. So he brought the best, uh, he brought something from his fields. Now, there are many Christians, and this is what I heard in the young, in my younger days, other preachers saying, Abel brought blood. He killed a lamb. That's why he was accepted. Cain did not bring blood, and therefore he was not accepted. God always wanted blood sacrifices, but As I grew older and I got to study the scripture for myself, I discovered that there were lots of offerings in the book of Leviticus in which there was no blood, which God accepted, and on which the fire came too. There was no blood. If it was a sin offering, then it had to have blood. This is not a sin offering. They were just thanking God at the end of the year for their crop or their sheep. It was a thanksgiving offering. And in a thanksgiving offering, there was no need for blood. In the book of Leviticus, they had to bring whatever was in their their profession, they would bring the best of that and say, thank you, Lord. I mean, in today's terms, if a man was a shopkeeper, from his profits, he'd give to God. And he didn't have to bring blood. Cain was a farmer, so he brought the best of his grain, or he brought some grain. Abel was a shepherd, and that's why he brought a lamb. It had nothing to do with blood. But I discovered that only later. 
But see, that seemed to be an easy way out of that chapter. And I believe the devils deceived people by that explanation. Because you get past that and go on to the next verse. But there's something there I have missed. Which comes out in Genesis that this guy Abel offered a better offering. And I missed that if I just say it was blood. So I looked at it a little more carefully. And I saw one big difference. You know, it's amazing when you read the Bible carefully. One word, one word can make all the difference. That's what I saw. What did Cain bring? An offering. A-N. An offering. That means he went into the fields and just picked up whatever grain he could find and came and gave it to God. Whereas what did Abel bring? He went into his flock and brought the firstlings. The meaning of that is the very best. He looked around and said, not this one, not, not this one, not this one, not this one. Yeah, this one. And not this, not this, this one. And if he brought two or three sheep, it, he looked around, took some time and brought the best, which cost him something. Whereas Cain just picked up something and gave it. And the Lord, verse 4, last part, had respect for Abel. Because he brought something after careful selection to give God the best. So I see from that there are two types of Christians. There are Christians who seek to give God the best of their time, their life, their money, their energies, their study time and everything, the very best. And there are others who just give an offering. Oh, I have to read the Bible. Okay, let me open the Bible in the morning and read it. Uh, yeah, my 15 minutes is up. Okay, finished. That is Cain. An offering. Have you read your Bible today? Oh, yes, I have. And you can do that every day. And you can pat yourself on the back and say, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a person who reads the Bible every day. But you don't see much progress in your life. You don't see any closeness to God in your life. You don't see the anointing and power of God upon your life and your ministry. Not much fruit seems to come out of your life. We can't produce fruit. You've heard me use the illustration of the branch in the tree. The branch cannot produce any fruit. It's the tree that sends the sap and produces the fruit. And God sends it to some and not to others. And here I see the secret. God sees, what is this man bringing to me? What is this woman bringing to me? Has it cost them something? Yeah, that's a very big test. You know, that's the beginning of the Old Testament. You go to the end of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1. You find the same things happening at the end of the Old Testament with the people of Israel after 1,000 years of reading the law of God. How do they end up? What do they offer to God? Just like Cain, that which cost them nothing. Same old story, Malachi chapter 1. The Lord says in verse 6, A son honors his father. And a servant is master. Why don't you honor me? Why don't you show respect to me? Why do you despise my name? And they say, where? Where have we despised your name? How have we defiled your altar? 
And the Lord says, I'll tell you how. Listen to me. Just like Cain. When you come to offer a sacrifice, verse 8, you bring that blind lamb, which is a bit of a nuisance to you, for you in any case. It's a nuisance having a blind lamb or a blind cow. Okay, let me offer it to God. Even though there was a law of God that when you bring an offering, it must, you must examine it thoroughly to see that there's no defect in it at all. But they forgot about that. And then you find another lame goat. This lame goat is a big nuisance to me. Let me offer it. I've got to give a sacrifice to God. Let me offer up this lame goat. Do you see the spirit of Cain here? An offering. They can say, I gave an offering to God. I spent my time reading the Bible. I did this. I gave my tithe or whatever it is to God. And then he says, supposing you were giving a present to your governor. The governor was the biggest person in that state. And you want to give him a gift. <laughs> Would you go through your cattle and pick out the lame, blind, and say, oh, governor, here's a gift for you. Why not offer it to your governor, he says. Would he be pleased with it? And the Lord is saying, you treat me with less respect than you have for an earthly authority. That's a good question for us to ask ourselves. If an earthly authority, let's say the governor of California would come here to so sitting here, I think we'd all be very conscious throughout the service of the fact that he's sitting here. <laughs> he's an unconverted man sitting here. And it's good to ask ourselves, I'm not condemning you, I ask myself this question. How many meetings I've gone through without being actually conscious that the Lord Jesus Christ, ruler of heaven and earth, is here. I sing, Thou art worthy, and I'm not thinking of Jesus here. I mean, if I were speaking to you and I'm looking somewhere else and talking to you, you'd feel insulted. Why isn't he concentrating on me when he talks to me? I believe many a time when we sing songs like, Thou art worthy, we are not looking at Jesus, we are... Enjoy, just enjoying the tune and shaking our head and we know the tune so well we don't have to concentrate on Jesus being here we don't even know whether he's here it's exactly like talking to someone but we're looking somewhere else it's the best way of insulting somebody I'm not condemning you my brothers and sisters I've done it myself many times and God convicted me I'm speaking about what God spoke to my own heart when you sing something, all to Jesus I surrender. And I'm looking somewhere else or enjoying the tune, and swinging my hips and Jesus is not here. Who am, I, who am I talking to? Lord, I give my all to you. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And I'm not looking at the Lord. I'm not even aware that he's here. Think of that. Now, there are some songs we, our songs, you know, which we sing to one another or sing general truths in scripture. But there are some songs where we are singing directly to Jesus Christ. Those are the songs I'm thinking of. Out of all the songs we sing, the ones which we sing where I'm addressing the Lord. I want to ask you, are you looking at him or looking somewhere else when you're talking to him? That's what I mean by 
a careless attitude to worshiping God. I'm offering to God that which has cost me nothing. Just a good time. Might as well go for a sing-song session in some worldly music club. and had a good time and come back. If I'm not concentrated on the Lord, I have completely missed out. I've not worshipped. Who am I worshipping? Maybe I'm worshipping the songs and not Jesus. So when the Lord said this, he said, you know what he said? Verse 10, I wish there were some priests who would close the gates when somebody brought such a wretched, lame lamb or a blind goat. I wish somebody would shut the gates and say, no, God will not accept that offering. But those priests were compromisers. They were paid by the people like so many preachers today, so they can't afford to offend them. How can you offend somebody who's paying your salary? Those priests were paid a salary. They were working for a salary. Well, then you can't offend them, so you just accept that lame I wish there were priests who would shut the gates. I'm not pleased with you, verse 10. I will not accept this offering. And I wish there were more preachers who said that today. But the Lord says, listen to this, this is the best part of it. A day is coming. This is the end of the Old Testament, remember. Christ was just going to come in about two, three hundred years. From the right, from the east, to the West, not just in his, not in the small nation of Israel. You think you are the chosen people. Something's going to change now. A day is coming when from the East to the West, from every part of the earth, people are going to offer to me, like Abel, an offering that I can accept. An offering that is pure. By pure, that which cost us something. When we started the first CFC church, Way back in 48 years ago, it was in my home. We were just two of us when we began, only two families. And as we gathered a few people, somebody knew there'd be a big turnover. People would come and people would go. The word the Lord gave us was this verse. I'll never forget it. Malachi 1.11. From the east to the west. And we've seen that now, how the Lord's taken the word from to countries from the east to the west. There will be in many nations, he told us that 48 years ago, people who offer to me an offering that is pure, an offering that I can accept, an offering that's the very best. You know, that is how God accepted Abraham. God had tested Abraham in many ways when he was living a comfortable retired life in Ur of the Chaldees. One day God told him, fold up his tent and come with me. And he never even told him where he was going. And Abraham said, fine. You know, I love that passage in 1 Peter 3 where it says, Sarah called Abraham Lord. It's in the New Testament, by the way that wives must look at their husbands as their lords to lead them. And Abraham is an example. And Sarah says to her husband, Abraham, darling, where are we going? He says, I don't know. 
You're packing up everything and you don't know where you're going? God's told me to go, I don't know where. Are you coming? Sure, Abraham says, Sarah says, I'll go with you anywhere. Praise God for wives who can trust their husbands like that. Godly men whose wives can trust them. Be a husband like that. Whom your husband can, whom your wife can trust. Whom you can lead in the footsteps of the Lord. Sometimes not knowing where, but believing one thing, that if you honor God, he will honor you. It really works. I can tell you this today after 57 years of ministry. Never taking a salary from anybody, never depending on anyone. If you honor God, he'll honor you, of course. We went through a lot of struggle, poverty, but it was good for us. And Annie always, like Era said, okay, I'll come. You want to go here? We'll go here. You want to go there? You'll go there. Never once a question. And we are very blessed today. We believed one thing. If we honor God, he will honor us. Definitely, we were sure of that. And that if we sought sincerely the kingdom of God first and his righteousness, everything we need on earth will be added to us, without a doubt. And we can stand today and say that. And I believe, my dear brothers and sisters, you're not called to be full-time Christian workers like me, but you must still have this testimony that you must seek God's kingdom and his righteousness first. And at the end of your life, if people could examine every bit of your life and your financial accounts and your private life and every part of your life, one day it will all be thrown open at the judgment seat of Christ. They should be able to say there was a man who sought God's kingdom first and everything that he needed in life was added to him without even his looking for it. That should be the testimony of every one of us. I'll tell you, your children will not suffer. They, you will, they will not suffer if you put God's kingdom first. God will bless them abundantly beyond your expectation, beyond what you can do yourself for them. Put the Lord first. So here in Genesis 22, the Lord one day told Abraham, <clears throat> take your son, verse 2, <clears throat> offer him in the land of Moriah as a sacrifice to me. That's an amazing command. More difficult than telling him at the age of 75 to pack up and go where he doesn't know where he's to go. And we read that verse 4, on the third day, Abraham reached Mount Moriah. And I've often thought, you know, we must meditate on scripture, not just read it. I thought, why did God tell him to offer the sacrifice three days journey away? I'm sure there were some mountains nearby. He gave Abraham three days to think about it. Is it worth serving a God like this who wants my son? Is it worth it? Every day think about it. morning till night, go to bed at night. I don't think he slept any of those three nights. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? And finally he comes to that mountain and he says, Lord, it's worth it. I'm going to offer my son. I don't know why you want him, but I'll offer him. <clears throat> and he'll Puts the wood on the altar. And I tell you, I admire the way Abraham brought up his son. His son was old enough to carry the wood up the mountain, which means he must have been about 20 years old to carry all that wood up the mountain. <clears throat> Abraham was 120. And then he put lays the wood and he tells this 20-year-old boy who asks him, where's the, where's the animal? 
is you're the one, lie down there. I'm going to kill you now. How many 20-year-olds today will obey their father like that? And will lie down still while the father takes up the knife? That shows me something about Isaac, but it shows me something about the father who brought up Isaac like that. To fear God and obey him, not being afraid of anything, knowing that it will turn out alright in the end, as it did. And God, God waits till the last minute. There's no playing games here. As the knife is to come down, the angel says, stop. And look what he says. I never forget these words. Genesis 22:12. In the middle of that verse, now I know that you fear God. As if God did not know that in the beginning. Doesn't he know everybody's heart? But he wants, he proves us. And it's only after he proves us that he can say, now I know that you'll obey me whatever I tell you to do. And because you have done this, Abraham, I swear, verse 16, because you did not even withhold your son, there'll be no limit to which I'm going to bless you. Verse 17. For generations, you're going to be blessed. These things are written for our encouragement and for our instruction. Like I said at the beginning, there are two levels at which you can live the Christian life. One is the bare minimum. I want to go to heaven when I die. And there are enough preachers in the world to tell you what is the bare minimum to go to heaven when you die. I wish there were more who would tell us about offering to God that which costs us something. The sacrifice which God accepts. And that is why there are so few Christians who are very satisfied with their Christian life. You know, in the Living Bible, Proverbs 14, 14, it's an easy verse to remember. It says, the godly man's life is exciting. I want to ask you, my brothers, is your Christian life exciting? Many Christians will say, boy, my Christian life is a burden. <laughs> Or is boring. How many Christians can honestly say, my Christian life is exciting? It really is. I can say that. And I'm not pretending. I've really found my walk with the Lord to be very exciting, more and more so as time goes on. And especially when you face situations where you don't know what the answer is. Wonderful. There's a storm. Jesus is asleep. Or it looks as if he's asleep. What's going to happen? He's going to solve it somehow or the other. There's not a situation in life which he cannot solve. And I'll tell you this, after having been a Christian for 64 years, I've never, 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 and I'm not exaggerating, I've never found a situation in my life for which there was no solution with God. There was always a solution. And if I sought him, he would show it to me. And he'd do it. It may be painful sometimes. Sometimes it hurt others. In fact, a lot of my preaching hurts other people that they write all types of things against me on the internet. Sure. If you search my name on the internet, one of the first things you'll see is false teacher. Good. Well, I'm in the footsteps of Jesus there. He was the first person called a false teacher. But what are they saying? You read what is written, what are they upset about? They're upset about the high standard we preach. Don't live at the level of what is the bare minimum. 
seek to please God, not, not, not just to go to heaven. All things are lawful. You want to live at that level? Or that which is profitable, that which will please God, that which is for God's highest. Yeah. <clears throat> Turn with me now to Second Samuel chapter 24. We read here about David. Towards the end of his life, he made a big blunder. He tried to count the people in the army. All, all his years, God had helped him in his battles. But somehow towards the end of his life, he wanted to find out, Am I, is my army strong enough to fight with the enemy? His confidence began to shift away from God, from faith in God, to faith in the number of his soldiers. And he told even his servant Joab, Verse 4, try to say, hey, why do you want to do that? Joab said, but his word prevailed against Joab's. Joab said to the king, verse 3, why do you want to count the people? Let the Lord add in number, don't count them. But David said, no, we're going to count them. Okay, he went and counted and as soon as he came back, God was so angry with him for depending on the strength of his army that verse 15, he sent a pestilence. Because God said, I've got to punish you. Tell me what you want. Verse 13. Shall you, shall I send you seven years of famine? Or three months of running away from your enemies? Or three days of pestilence? David said, very good word. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord. Verse 14. For his mercies are great. And not into the hands of men. It's a wonderful word to say, Lord, any day let me fall into your hands rather than into the hands of men. Because your mercies are great. Man is unmerciful. So let me fall into your hands. And so God punished him. And do you know how many people died? We read down here that 70, verse 15, 70,000 men died as a punishment because David counted the strength of his army, depended on the strength of his army and not upon God. You read some of these things and you see how strict God is with people who don't trust Him. 70,000 widows in Israel. Why? Because a man trusted in the strength of his army and not in God. So the Lord told David, you got to offer a sacrifice now to clear up all this. Go and erect an altar, verse 18, and offer an offering to me there. So he went to the place where God had told him the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. And when he went there, Arauna said, Oh king, what do you want? He said, I want to make an offering here. Hey, I want to get your land from you. And he said, Oh king, you're my king. Take everything free. Land, I'll give it to you as a gift. The, the wood, the cattle, everything. I have, Take it all. I don't want any payment for it. You're my king. And listen to the words of David. If I buy it free from you, it'll cost me nothing. If I offer it to God, I will, verse 24, 2 Samuel 24, verse 24. Please remember this verse all your life. It changed my life more than 60 years ago. 2 Samuel 24, 24. I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. In the middle of verse 24. Make that a motto in your life. I remember more than 60 years ago when God spoke that to me. And said, you must never offer to me a sacrifice which has cost you nothing. 
And I said, Lord, please help me that all my life I will never offer to you that which has cost me nothing. He paid for it. You know, that which, if he offered to God something that is cheap, which I got free. The Christian world is full of people who are eager to grab something free. Is that free? Ah, yes, give me. Even if I don't need it, I'll get it because it's free. It does not cost me anything. I can't offer that to God. God says, I won't accept it. I have to offer to God that which has cost me something. I want to show you one last verse. Second Chronicles 3. You know the temple of God in the Old Testament which Solomon built is a picture of the church. Like the tabernacle which Moses built is a picture of the church. The temple which Solomon built was also a picture of the church. And the temple was, you know, the law. Moses said, you must not offer the Lord's sacrifice anywhere. The place which the Lord has chosen, that's the place where you must offer the sacrifice. So the temple had to be built in the place which God had chosen. So you come to Second Chronicles in chapter 3 and verse 1 and see where the Lord built the temple. Very interesting. That's where he's building the church today. That's why it's important. Second Chronicles 3.1 Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Mount Moriah. That's where Abraham offered up his son. The first man who said, I will not offer to God that which cost me nothing. Abraham. And Mount Moriah was a big place. But in which part of Mount Moriah? In the place where David had offered a sacrifice in the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite, which we just read. Where he had said to Araunah, I will not offer to the Lord that which cost me nothing. See how particular the Lord was. This is the spot where you must build the altar and the temple around it. Because here two of my servants offered a sacrifice that cost them something. And I want to say to you, that is the place where the Lord is building his church today. Where he finds men and women who will offer to him, like Abel, like Abraham, like David, that which has cost them everything. And if you find that God is using somebody else and not you, you know the reason now. But he wants to use you. He wants to use every one of us. May God help us.